Let's open our Bibles together this morning to the book of Esther. Book of Esther, as God's providence would have it, we are studying the life of this amazing woman on Mother's Day. And no, we did not plan it this way. We are teaching through all 66 books of the Holy Bible. And we're doing an overview each week of one of the books of the Bible. And we have taken weeks off and we have done other things like communion service uh, where we talked about the new covenant. We have done two Easter services and it just so happened. And we're going to be talking about that this morning. Nothing just so happens, but as God's providence would will it, we are covering the life of this amazing woman on Mother's Day. And I want to remind you, as we've been going through this study in context, looking at each book of the Bible, it connects us to Jesus. It points us forward to the point of the entire Bible. Jesus is on every page of Scripture, even when we don't see his name written there. The old, entire Old Testament is pointing forward to Jesus. The New Testament is when he arrives and the Gospels tell us the story of his life. And then after his resurrection and ascension, we see the rest of Scripture telling us the, the promises and the instructions for his church and the great commission for us to share the gospel, share the good news, and to go into all the world making disciples. And then we have the promise that one day he's coming back. But as we're going through the books of the Old Testament in order, not in chronological order, but in the order that we have them written in uh, our copy of God's word, we're going to see that every story is connected to God's good news, to the storyline of the gospel. And I want to remind you that the gospel starts in Genesis 1. The gospel is the good news, the story of God. Now, we often say that the gospel in a nutshell, or the summary of the gospel, is John 3.16. That uh, God loved the world so much that he sent his only son. We talk about the death, burial, and the resurrection being the heart of the gospel, and it is. But it's not all of the gospel. The good news, first of all, tells us that we're made in God's image. Then it tells us that we fell into sin. Then it tells us God had a plan to redeem mankind. Jesus came as the fulfillment, the Messiah, the deliverer, lived a perfect sinless life, died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended back into heaven, commissioned his church, and he's drawing people from every tribe, every language, every tongue to worship him, to be born again, to be forgiven. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And the book of Esther in the Old Testament is connected to that story. You may look at this and say, why did God choose to preserve this story over all the other stories? And this morning, we're going to walk through the storyline of the book of Esther. And I want to remind you that the Jewish people at this point in time were in a time of exile and punishment by God. They had been taken away into Babylon, and then Babylon was conquered by the Medes and the Persians. And that's where we're picking up the story where some of the Jewish people were in exile in Persia, in the city of Susa. They're in a foreign land, a pagan nation, but God did not forget his people. And neither did Satan, as we're going to see in this story. So open your Bibles to Esther chapter 1, starting in verse 1, and we're just going to walk through the storyline together, hitting the high points. Chapter one, verse one says, now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. 
So let's pause right there. I want you to see that this is historical. God's word is true. It's historical. It is not myths. It's not fables. It's not fairy tales. This is God's word. And it's been proven over and over and over again by archaeology and by discoveries throughout history. God's word has never been proven untrue. Not one word of God's word has ever been proven untrue by one thing that man has discovered in archaeology. They have found things that they thought disproved God's word, or they have yet to find things that they think disproves God's word, but always we see in history archaeology catching up to the Bible, and it proves God's word over and over and over again. So this morning, the story of Esther, we're talking about real people at a real time in real places, and God is going to use these people for his glory. We see this king, Ahasuerus, and he is reigning over uh, all these nations, over the Medes and the Persians, from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. He's basically ruling a majority of the world at that time. He's entrusted by God at this time in history to reign because all authority comes from God. All authority that is given, that is delegated to us, is given to us for a reason, and it comes from God. But I want you to look at verse 4. If you'll notice in verse 4 of Esther chapter 1, we see that Ahasuerus is a very proud man. His motive in throwing this elaborate, multi-week, multi-month party celebration that he is throwing, we're, sh we're shown the motive and his motive was to display his riches, his royal glory, and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, for 180 days, for around six months. And his goal was to show off how powerful he was. So we see this man is a very proud man, even though he had been given authority by God. He's proud and his motive is all about himself. I want you to look at verse 8. The Bible tells us that he commanded in regard to drinking because there was food, there was alcohol in abundance. And he commands that there should be no compulsion. But he goes on to say, for the king had given orders to do as each man desired. If that's not the heart of our day and age, I don't know what is. The book of Judges said everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's what he's telling them. No one's forcing you to do anything. This is a time of liberation. You do whatever your heart desires. Or as Disney puts it, follow your heart. Which is the complete opposite of the gospel message. Satan's greatest strategy for the world and for God's people is to get us to indulge our desires and forget our need for God. We a lot of times think he wants us to do horrible, horrible things, murder people, uh, pull off these, embezzle money, do all these horrible, illegal things. But really all Satan wants us to do is just do whatever ever feels good to us. Maybe what feels good to us is being self-righteous and keeping all the rules. You know what? He can dangle us like a puppet on our self-righteous pride, just like he can dangle a drunkard from his addiction. He doesn't care. He just wants us to do whatever our heart desires because the Bible tells us our hearts are bent toward evil. 
And we desire the things that will bring us destruction rather than the things that will bring us life. If you look down at verse 10, we're going to see a turn in this story. So we're just being introduced, but there's a statement in verse 10 that turns this entire narrative. It says, when the heart of the king was merry with wine. What we see in this passage is the king has given in to drunkenness. I wonder how many stories and how many lives have taken a dark turn like we see in this story because of these words. Their heart was merry with wine. They were drunk, excessive drinking. The Bible is absolutely clear, unequivocal that drunkenness is a sin. Through the Old Testament, through the New Testament. And it's clearly spelled, spelled out in multiple places. And I wonder how many wrecked lives in our culture, up and down these streets, throughout this city, how many lives are wrecked by drunkenness? How many can trace the demise of their story back to a point where someone's heart was merry with wine? We medicate, we overindulge, we drown our troubles instead of facing them and dealing with them. We turn to something besides God for deliverance, for rescue, for peace, and that is idolatry. And that's why drunkenness is a sin. It is destructive. It has always been destructive. It's idolatry. And it's because of his drunkenness that he commands his wife, the queen, to do something that is incredibly inappropriate. As you read in your version of the Bible and you see that he tells the queen to come before all the people, you don't get the full extent of what he's telling her to do. He's wanting to expose her and her beauty for his own pride, for his own glory, basically saying, this belongs to me. This is an object that is intended to simply bring me gratification rather than to love her and respect her and lead her in the way that God commanded him to do. So he commands his wife to do something incredibly inappropriate. And by the way, she does the right thing. She refuses. And doing the right thing costs her everything. And yet she fades from the pages of scripture for doing the right thing. And the king, his story continues on. Does that sound fair to us? It doesn't sound fair, but I want to remind you that God sees everything. He knows everything. And God is always working behind the scenes to accomplish his will. Look at verse 12. It says, at this time, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. This pride that we've already talked about, it overflows into anger and rage. And isn't that how sin is? Sin always grows. Our little pet sins that we hide and nobody else sees, it grows and it becomes something ugly, something bigger. Sin begets more sin. And as we see his anger and his rage burning within him, causing him to do foolish things, we're reminded that we cannot be consumed and controlled by our anger. The Bible tells us anger is a tool. We should get angry. There's, there's a righteous purpose for anger. The Bible says that Jesus was angry, but he didn't sin. 
There's a time to be righteously indignant against the things that are happening in this world, against the things that are against God. But he's angry because of his own pride. We must not be dominated by our anger. We must submit it to God because anger can be a tool when it's submitted to God. But when we're slaves to our temper, to our anger, to our rage, we're in danger of not only destroying our own life, but the lives of everybody around us. So we move on in verse 13 and in verse 21, it says, it talks about the wise men who knew the times, who advised the king. Verse 21 says they advised the, this advice pleased the king and the princes and the king did as they proposed his wise men. We never read in this story where the king prayed. He knew about God. He understood the prophecies. He had access to God's word. It was taken away into the land of the Medes and the Persians. It was taken away into Babylon. But he obviously wasn't interested in that. He's leaning on the advice of pagans. And we never see him praying. We never see him reading scripture. He's leaning on people who do not believe in God. Listen to this, church. He's opening his ears. He's opening his mind. He's opening his heart to people who do not know God, to people who do not believe in God, who do not love God or his word. Isn't that foolish? Just think about that. Just stop and think about that. Aren't you glad we don't do that? Aren't you glad we don't live like that in our day and age? Aren't you glad that we don't invite godless pagans into our living room, into our cars, into our earbuds? To speak into our lives. Aren't you glad we're so much better than this king? I'm being sarcastic obviously. Because we do that every single day. We have God's word. We have Christians. We have godly people around us. And where are, what are we pouring into our ears? Into our minds? Into our eyes? Into our hearts? I'm not, I'm not a preacher who says we pull out of culture avoid culture, don't engage culture, the exact opposite. We're called to be in this world, but not of this world. We're called to engage this world. We're called to be all things to all people. We enjoy media. We, we can enjoy movies for God's glory, but we've got to be careful about what we open our minds and our hearts to. As a teenager, I look back at the music I was sneaking around and listening to because I wasn't allowed to do anything as a teenager. We weren't allowed to watch movies. We weren't allowed to listen to anything other than choir singing gospel music, okay? I didn't do that. And, and as silly as it felt at that age, I wish I'd listened to my parents because I opened my ears and through the gates of my ears and through the gates of my eyes, a message me reached my heart that influenced me to do some foolish things. In church, we're just as guilty as King Ahasuerus was when we open our minds and our hearts and our eyes and our ears to pagan, godless advice. It's something we've got to be careful because I don't believe God calls us to hide ourselves in a basement, a basement withdraw from culture and pray for Jesus to come back. We're called to engage this culture, to be lights in the darkness. You can't do that hiding from it. 
We've got to engage it, but we've got to engage it in a godly way. And that's an entire sermon in and of itself. I don't have time to dive into that, but we need to examine our lives because the demise of this king and almost his entire kingdom was because of foolish advice that was coming from godless pagans. We're told in Romans 12 not to be pressed into the mold of culture. Not to be pressed into the mold of culture. But to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. David tells us in the book of Psalms how to renew our minds. He says by taking heed to the words of God. Psalms 1 tells us the same thing. The blessed man is the one who doesn't take counsel from the ungodly, doesn't stand in the way of the sinner, doesn't sit in the seat of the scoffer, but his delight is in what? The law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. We can't live a successful, godly Christian life and impact this culture apart from God's word. We've got to know it, we've got to obey it, we've got to live it, we've got to share it. That's why we're teaching the Bible this morning. That's chapter one, and if you're tracking with me, you're like, okay, he's going to have to go a little faster through the rest of these chapters. We've got ten to cover, so let's move into chapter two. Then the king's, verse two, then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful virgins, young virgins, be sought out for the king. So again, we see the king taking advice from the wrong people. This is a pattern in his life. You can trace it through his life. In verse five, we're introduced to a man and a, a woman in verse 7 who is part of the exiled Jews. Mordecai is in a position of influence. He's a good man. He does what's right in the middle of a culture that is doing what's wrong. And Esther, who was a double orphan, she had lost her mother. She had lost her father. Incredible difficulties in her life, yet she's blessed. She's cared for. We also see that she's a descendant of King Saul, which is a picture of grace, that God would allow this disgraced king whose kingdom had been removed from him. One of his descendants plays a very pivotal role in the entire plan of God for his people and for the world. We also believe that Esther is a middle-aged woman. We don't believe this is a very young teenage girl. She's a middle-aged woman. She has some wisdom. She has proven herself, and God gives her favor. Verse 10 says that Esther had not made known her people or her kindred, the fact that she was a Jew, for Mordecai, her uncle, had commanded her not to make it known. So she's a wise woman. She's taking counsel from a godly man. She's obedient to the authority in her life. He was a father figure to her. He was a godly man. She's respecting him and obeying him, and it brings her life. The king, as the story goes, most of you know, he throws this beauty pageant, again, at the advice of foolish men for wrong motives, yet we're going to see God use it in a powerful way. As he has all these women paraded before him to feed his own pride and his own desires, verse 17 says, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So I want to ask you a question. And this goes to the heart and the root 
of this biblical story. Did the king honor God in his actions? Absolutely not. Did he do the right thing? Absolutely not. Yet God is still in control and God still rules and reigns over the affairs of men. Church, we're not robots. We're not robots just walking down around here with no choice, no options. But our sinful and our disobedient will cannot derail God's plans. Yes, we disobey. But we cannot stop God's plans. Evil men, Satan himself, cannot stop God's will from coming to pass. How many times has God taken our evil and used it for good? How many times has he taken our mistakes and our failures and used it to teach us the greatest lessons of our lives? How many times has God taken what someone else intended for evil against us and used it for his honor, for his glory, and for our own good? That's the story of Esther. In verse 20, we see again this statement that we saw in verse 10. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. Guess what? This is after she becomes queen. She has all the power, more power than Mordecai. And she doesn't forget to honor this man that had led her well, that had her good at heart. And through him, she's given wisdom that saves herself and her people. She shows respect and honor to Mordecai, even though she was the queen. Verse 21, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai and he told it to Queen Esther and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. What do we see in this passage? We see that Esther... And Mordecai, who were basically slaves before Esther was exalted to be the queen. We see that they are seeking the welfare of the city, even though they were living in exile. This is what they were commanded to do in Jeremiah 29 verse 4. To seek the welfare of the city where God had sent them into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf and for in its welfare you will find your welfare. You know who else is living in exile this morning? Every Christian, every child of God. This world is not our home. We're living in a foreign land. We're living in exile. This is Babylon. I don't know if we're running around telling people this is a Christian nation anymore, but it's just not. Yes, we were founded on Christian principles. Yes, it's even in our constitution. But if you look at our city, if you look at our culture, you look at our nation, we are living in the new Babylon. And how are we called to live as Christians? Read the book of Daniel. Read the book of Esther. We're called to be holy as God is holy. We're called to read God's word, to know God's word, to love it, to obey it, and to walk according to his will in the middle of a pagan culture. I saw a group of people holding signs they claim to be Christians yesterday in downtown downtown Asheville. I don't know very much about them, but I know that I was driving past them and stopped at a red light for about two minutes. And all I heard 
was you're going to hell. God's angry with you. God hates your sin. You're going to hell. God is going to judge you. I never one time heard the gospel. That God loves you. That he came and died on the cross for your sin. They may have said it. I was, I was only there a few minutes. They had a sign that said repent or perish. And there is a time to declare that to a very fallen and broken society and culture. I'm not saying that's wrong. But in the time that I was there, and I wonder how many other hundreds or thousands of people walked past and all they heard was that God was going to damn them to hell rather than hearing that there's grace, that there's forgiveness in Jesus. That's what the gospel is. Yes, we're called to speak the truth, but we're called to speak the truth in love to a culture that is sinners just like we are, just like we were before Christ. We're called to share the good news of the gospel with them. Chapter 3. Got to move quicker. The king promotes an evil man, Haman, over everyone in his kingdom. Haman hates Mordecai and decides in his evil mind that he is going to destroy all the Jews because Mordecai is a Jew. Let me tell you something. That didn't come from the mind of Mordecai. That came from the heart and the mind of Satan into this evil man. And we see that he seeks, in verse 7, he seeks the dark arts. And we see him casting lots, rolling dice, seeking the advice of demons, witchcraft, the occult. That's exactly what was happening. In order to determine the best date to destroy God's people. That's why he's doing this. He's rolling the dice and he gets the answer. He gets the date. We also see in scripture that God's people cast lots or roll dice as we call it now. God's people cast lots, but they were doing it for an entirely different reason. They understood that God controls even the rolling of the dice. God controls everything in his culture. And there were times where people didn't know what to do. They would pray and they would say, God, you control the lots. You control the dice. Let it land where it, where it will, where you will it to land. And this was a declaration of trust in God's providence. But what we see Haman doing is something dark, something totally different. He's trusting in dark powers in order to destroy God's plan and the people of God. And Haman, who had been exalted to basically second in the kingdom, was very influential on King Ahasuerus. And he comes up with this elaborate scheme, much like what we see in the book of Daniel. When they scheme to throw Daniel into the lion's den because he's praying to God. They fool, he, they fool the king through this elaborate plan. And the king gives in foolishly. We see that Haman is a proud man. He's empowered by Satan. The king is foolish. He's influenced by evil people. And we always know that sin is deceptive. Sin takes us further than we want to go. Sin always holds on to us longer than we want to be involved with it. You cannot control your sin. Church, Christians, someone needs to be here this morning just to hear this. I need to hear this this morning. You cannot handle sin. It will destroy your life and everybody you love. We see that in the life of the king. Chapter 4. I told you I was moving a little faster. Chapter 4. Mordecai learns what had been done. This evil command to destroy all of God's people. It had been given the sanction of the king. 
And Mordecai tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth and ashes. It doesn't say it in the passage, but the reason he's putting on sackcloth and ashes is because he's going to God in prayer. He's fasting and he's praying. He's seeking God. Now, the name of God is not mentioned one time in this book, and that's intentional. He's behind the scenes. I have a friend at Hope Church Trenton in Georgia, and he preached an entire series through this book. He didn't try to do it in one day like I'm doing. He did it over like multiple weeks. He's a lot smarter than I am. And he called the name of his study through the book of Esther the hidden king. Now, the book is named after the queen, Esther, but there's a hidden king in this book that's never named, that's never mentioned, but he's behind every single decision, every single roll of the dice. God is sovereign over everything that's happening in this book and in this passage. And Mordecai, because of his faith in God, his belief in God, he has the heart of God and he cares for God's people. He weeps and mourns and turns to God in prayer. And he comes up with this plan. He told Esther that her position was given to her by God for such a time as this to be used for God's kingdom. And he had faith that even if she refused to do what God had elevated her to this position to do, that God would bring deliverance from another place. And he tells her that she was exalted for such a time as this. I believe every single Christian in this room has been saved for such a time as this. We can sit around and whine and complain about our culture, our society, all the brokenness, all the darkness, all the evil. But we're the light. Jesus called his disciples the light of the world, told us to shine the light of Jesus in this world. We act as if we've been defeated. Evil can't defeat God. If God's for us, who can be against us? He is in control of everything. Esther agrees but she requests a time of fasting and prayer. Again, it's implied. It's not mentioned. But she asks them to put on sackcloth and ashes for a certain number of days. And she's asking them to seek God in prayer, declaring her weakness, declaring her inability, her need for God. And she agrees to do it, she says, even if it costs her her own life. She's afraid, yet she's brave. In the face of her fears. In chapter 5, we see that Esther goes before the king. She's given grace. She's given favor. I want to remind you that favor comes from God. Psalm 84 verse 11 says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Favor comes from God. Proverbs 3, 1 through 4 says, My son, do not forget my teachings, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them about your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Favor comes from God. We see Haman in chapter 5, verses 9 through 14 presses forward in his plan to destroy Mordecai, God's man. He's, he's building a gallows to hang his enemy, Mordecai. It looks like everything else in Haman's life is going great. He's happy until he's reminded that Mordecai won't bow down before him. Mordecai couldn't do that because he only worshiped God. So what does he do? 
ruled by his pride and his arrogance. He's filled with wrath. He goes home. This is such a funny verse in this book, and it tells us a couple times he does this. He goes home, and he whines, and he pouts to his wife and his friends because this slave won't bow down and worship him. Everything else that's going on in his life, he's second in command over all the kingdom. He's basically the vice president. He can do anything he wants to do. has all the money, all the property, all the influence. His plans are happening exactly like he wants. But one little guy won't bow down and worship him. And he's ruled by his wrath and his anger. He whines and he pouts because he doesn't get his way in one little area of life. We can look at him and say, what, what a fool, what an idiot. But guys, we're more blessed than almost any other generation in all of history. We have more access to food, to wealth, to pleasure, to entertainment. We have access to the things of God, good things, God's blessings. And how many days do we go through so unhappy, so depressed, so upset about what we don't have? The one little thing we don't have, half the world is, is looking for enough food to live and we're over here in America and we're upset because somebody cuts us off in traffic. Big deal. Thank God that you have a car. And I'm preaching to myself this morning because I get mad when people cut me off. That's my road. I own it. They just get to drive on it and they should yield when I come driving down the road. It's funny, but that's how we act. That's how Haman acted. Why? Because of the pride and the arrogance in his heart. And it's little things like that that, that that expose the pride and the arrogance in our hearts. And I see a reflection of myself in Haman, and it scares me to death. Because it's always just below the surface. Yes, I'm born again. Yes, I'm saved. Yes, I'm a Christian. But I still live in a body of flesh and bones. And I still have a sin nature. Yes, Jesus saved my soul. Yes, I'm going to heaven when I die. But I live in this body and I could do things this afternoon, tomorrow, this week that could destroy everything in my life. If I'm not dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Again, his family gives him bad advice. Then we see in chapter 6, he continues his evil plans. But this is where God gets involved to an even greater degree. And it's even more visible, even though God's name isn't mentioned. We're told in chapter 6, verse 1, that the king could not sleep. This is where God starts bringing his deliverance. Through a sleepless night by the king. It's not coincidence that he couldn't sleep. It's not coincidence that they bring in the chronicles, the books, to read to him. And it's not coincidence that he discovers that this man who's going to be hung the very next day was the very one who saved his life. And when he discovers it, he asks, had this man ever been honored? And he calls in Haman and he says, what could the king do? What should the king do for the man who he wants to honor? And Haman thinks, who's the king want to honor more than me? So he comes with this elaborate plan that they should, he should be led through the streets on a horse dressed in the king's clothing. And the person leading the horse should declare that this man is honored by the king and tell of all the great things he had done. The king says, that's an incredible plan. Put Mordecai on the horse and you lead him through the streets. He went to the castle to ask for the king to let him hang Haman on the gallows that day. That was the very night. That the king couldn't sleep. That he was reminded of the story. And none of it's coincidence. God is working behind the scenes right on time. 
God overrules evil. He uses Haman's pride and his evil plans for Mordecai's good. Do you believe that your God can protect you in the exact same way? I believe he can. I think he still is, is promising hope and a future to his people that obey him. Yes, he allows bad things to happen in our lives. But church, evil is on a leash. It's controlled by God. Satan can only come so far. Just like the waves of the ocean can only come so far. The Bible says God's drawn a line. And they can't go any further than that unless he allows it. Evil has a limit. God is ultimately sovereign. He's in control. And God uses evil for our good and for his glory. He's working all things out for our good. And we can see in the middle of this, at the end of chapter 6, how God is writing a powerful story. Even non-believers, even pagans throughout history have read the story of Esther and said this is an absolutely breathtaking, artistic work that stands out throughout all of history, throughout all writings in the world. Because who's writing the story? God. God writes a good story. Guess what? He's writing your story if you're submitted to his will, if you're living according to his word. I don't want to write my own story. God writes a better story than I could ever write. It's my job to trust him. Yes, I don't understand it. Yes, at times, many times, I don't want what he commands. I think I want something else. My heart, my flesh desires something that's not good for me. But as long as we're trusting in him, walking with him, he's working behind the scenes. And we know that we serve a God so powerful that even if the enemy destroys us, takes our life, even in death, God doesn't forget us. He, he, he never leaves us. He never forsakes us. Our God is watching out and protecting his people and providing for his people, even in death. Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is even better it's gained. All I have to look forward to on the other side is eternal joy. No more pain, no more suffering, no more heartache, no more death. Chapter 7. We see that Esther, this is the culmination of everything. All the plans that have been taking place. She's brave. She risks her very life to save her people. She exposes evil. She stands against evil. Esther calls evil by its name. And Haman is exposed. And he's terrified, the Bible says, before God's judgment. The Bible tells us that people who reject God will one day stand before the judgment. It's appointed unto man, wants to die, after this the judgment. And the God of all grace, the God of all mercy, who offers time and time and time again throughout our lives, forgiveness, salvation, mercy. If we die in our sins, one day we will stand before him and he will be the judge. And the Bible says we will be stricken with terror. Because we will know in our hearts that we deserve exactly what's coming to us. But that doesn't have to happen. Grace is offered through Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is offered. If we repent, we turn from our sins, trust in him, believe in Jesus. Salvation is available. But Haman rejected God, rejected God's salvation, rejected God's people. And all who oppose God and his people will be destroyed. His evil scheme is not only destroying his own life, but his, own, his family's life. Sin never delivers on what it promises. When, when are we going to realize this? 
At my age, I've been through experiment after experiment where I thought my sin was going to bring me happiness, and it never did. Our sin will destroy us unless we repent and trust in God. There's no salvation apart from God. There's no other Savior besides Jesus. Chapter 8. God destroys his enemies and exalts his people. He provides salvation for his people. God moves mountains to protect his people. He works miracles to protect his people. He put fear into the hearts of the enemies of God. And he empowered his people to stand up, defend themselves. And the Bible tells us that there was a revival and a conversion of many people who turned and trusted the God of Israel because of what happened. Chapter 9. God provides a great victory for his people, a crushing defeat for his enemies. Mordecai becomes more powerful. Promotion comes from God. I said this a few weeks ago. Do you want to be promoted? Do you want to be exalted? Do you want to live a life of significance? Promotion comes from God. Honor God, obey his word, and trust him to handle the details of your life, to write your story. No good thing will he withhold from those who delight in him, who obey his will. Haman's evil destroyed his entire family, his entire future. All Not only Haman was hanged on the gallows that he built with his own hands, his ten sons were hanged on the gallows that he built with his own hands for Mordecai. Be sure your sin will find you out. And all of his property was given to Queen Esther. And Mordecai records these things in chapter 9 verse 20. And sent out letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year. So through God's deliverance of his people, this declaration was sent out by Mordecai to all the Jews in all nations to observe the feast of Purim. It becomes a holiday, even to this day. It's celebrated. And chapter 10 ends with peace, the preservation of God's people, a time of prosperity and blessing, promotion for Mordecai and Esther. And we see God's plan is being accomplished in spite of all of the evil that raises its head against the will of God. So we must celebrate God's victory and God's deliverance. And God's salvation as the people of Israel did. We must give God glory. And I want to remind you this book is inspired by God. It's holy scripture. God's name is not mentioned. But many of the details are things which could only be known by God. The person who wrote this book didn't know what Haman was thinking. Didn't know what was entering into the heart of the king. Didn't know what was going on behind the scenes. It's written by the Holy Spirit of God who inspired a human writer to record these details. We also know from Jewish history and tradition that Esther was a prophetess. We see multiple women prophets in the Old Testament. Esther is counted among them because God's spirit came on her and used her in a supernatural way to bring a great rescue for his people. 
And here's where we've been headed the entire story. This is why I shared the storyline and took a lot of time to do it. Because I want you to see the Christ connection. Today is Mother's Day, and it's fitting that we've studied the life of a godly woman and a godly mother. Scripture doesn't record what happened to Esther or her children after this point in history. But Jewish history and Jewish historical writings tell us that her son, possibly grandson, we're not 100% sure, was King Cyrus, was either Esther's son or grandson. This is the same Cyrus who was brought to live with Queen Esther. She taught him about the laws of God and the prophecies that were written 150 years before he was born by God through the prophets that were about him. Imagine being raised saying, prophecies were written about you. God's going to use your life in a powerful way. And when the time comes for Cyrus to be king of Persia, he issues this decree by the will of God for all the Jews to return to Israel. And do you want to know what God thinks about Esther's descendants? Isaiah chapter 44 verse 28 says, Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built into the temple, the foundations shall be laid. So God used Esther to save his people in order that his promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, would come. Her children and her grandchildren were directly responsible for obeying God and sending the people of God back to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the walls so that prophecy could be fulfilled, so that Jesus could stand in the rebuilt temple. The temple had to be rebuilt for the Messiah to come. We see God using the descendants of Esther to make that happen. Why did that happen? Because she raised them in the fear of God. I'm thankful for godly mothers who raise children in this day and age to honor God, to love God. I have a godly mother who raised me. She loved me. She taught me. She corrected me. She modeled what it meant to be a godly person. And I'm thankful for my wife who's raising our children to love God and to walk in the fear of the Lord. The Bible says a godly woman will be honored, will be exalted. Her price is far above rubies. And I want to honor all the mothers that are in here today because you're central to God's plan. You're absolutely essential to the plans of God. You're a part of the puzzle, a part of the equation that if it were removed, God's will would not come in this world the way that he planned it. He uses godly women to raise godly children to pass it on to the next generation. All you have to do is look at the studies and see what's going on in our country from fatherlessness and motherlessness, kids that are raising themselves, bringing their culture and their families shame. Yet I'm thankful that there are families that are raising children in the fear of the Lord. And if you have a godly mother today, reach out to her and let her know. Hug her neck if it's possible and let her know that you're thankful that she was used by God in a powerful way. And I want to wrap this story up with really the legacy of what this book has become. 
I've told you about the Feast of Purim that was established. And the word pur comes from the word lots or dice. It's a play on words and it exposes the real heart of what this book is all about. If you remember when Haman wanted to seek the powers of evil, the powers of darkness, he rolled dice to defeat God, God's will, and God's people. The end of the story, what do they name the feast? It's the feast of the rolling of the dice. Because what the enemy meant for evil, God meant for good. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot or the dice is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Do you serve a God that controls every single thing in his universe? If you serve the God of the Bible, yes, you do. Yes, we make decisions. Yes, we obey. Yes, we disobey. But God is ruling and reigning sovereignly over all. And even the rolling of the dice is controlled by him. Why would you exalt yourself against God? When we disobey him, when we refuse to submit to him, we're challenging his authority. We're saying, I know better than God and I can defeat this God. Sin exalts itself against God's will and God's plan. So the entire story of Esther is summed up in this celebration that declares that God is sovereign over everything, even the rolling of the dice. Nothing in God's creation is outside of his control. Nothing is coincidental. He rules and he reigns over the affairs of mankind. And as we close, I want you to see the gospel in this story. There's one other story in scripture where we see somebody rolling dice, declaring that the powers of darkness has defeated God's plan. And that's at the cross of Jesus Christ when he's nailed to a rugged cross. The Roman soldiers are so disrespectful. They're laughing, they're playing games, and in the shadow of the cross, they're rolling dice, thinking that they're controlling history, thinking that the powerful Roman Empire and the emperor is controlling history. But little did they know that the man that was dying on a cross, hanging, gasping for breath, as the Roman soldiers are rolling dice for his clothes, that it had been prophesied hundreds of years before that they would cast lots for his garments. I believe that Satan and all of his demons were laughing, high-fiving one another in this moment, declaring victory over God and his Christ, saying that we finally got him, we finally defeated him, he's won every other battle throughout history, but we've outsmarted him, we have him on a cross, we, we're, we're killing him, we're defeating him, he thought he could control everything, but we win, he isn't sovereign, he doesn't control everything, not even the rolling of the dice. But on the morning of the third day, all hell trembled. The ground began to shake. The stone was rolled away from the tomb. And Jesus walked out of the grave in his resurrected body. He defeated death, hell, and the grave. The gospel was declared that the head of Satan was crushed under the feet of Jesus. And we celebrate this truth that God even controls the rolling of the dice and evil powers that conspire against God will all one day be destroyed. God cannot be defeated. 
Satan was a puppet being played by God to accomplish his will. As the nails were being driven in the hands of Jesus, the blood that was shed was the very thing that was needed to save my soul from hell. That's the gospel. That's the power of God. And if you think it's evil that they were trying to kill Esther and all the people of God, what's more evil than that is that they were trying to kill God himself on a cross, yet God willingly laid down his life. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I give it freely. He laid down on the cross. They crucified him. He declared it is finished. He said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And he died for my sins and for your sins. And on the third day, he rose from the grave declaring through the truth of the gospel that what the enemy meant for evil, God meant for good. Jesus is sovereign over all. He's king of kings. He's Lord of lords. And when he ascended into heaven, he declared to his disciple, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. Make disciples of all nations. That's why we're here, church. We're not playing games. We're not going through rituals. We're not going through motions. We're in this community to shine the light of the gospel. And we should do it with courage. We should do it just like Esther did it, saying that our God is fighting for us. And even if I die for this cause, I know that I'm going to win because I'm connected to his eternal story. And in the book of Esther, beneath all the drama, we see a God who is ruling in heaven, undisturbed by the defiance of those on earth who persist in trusting in their power, in their beauty, in their rituals, and in their own ambitions. And we remember that God himself chose to accomplish his greatest triumph of all human history through the lowliest means, through the pregnant virgin who gave birth to the Messiah, who lived a perfect sinless life. He was rejected and crucified on the cross for the sins of other men. We see through the bread and the wine and the foolishness of a message that abases us, mankind, and exalts a crucified Savior that God delights in crushing his enemy through the weakness of the cross. And he uses sinners to accomplish his will and make his own glory great. And through the blood of Jesus Christ, he offers salvation to all who will believe. I'm going to ask the band to come forward this morning. And I want to ask you to bow your heads and let's go into a moment of prayer. We should thank God for his deliverance, for his people. And I wonder if there's anybody here this morning that does not know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice on the cross... For your sins, you can be forgiven of every sin you've ever committed. You can be reborn, given a new life. The past forgotten, the past forgiven, all of your sins redeemed. You can become a child of God, loved and accepted through the power of the gospel. If you don't know Jesus, call on him this morning to save you. Declare that you believe in his death and his resurrection. You believe in who he is as the son of God. You believe in who he is and what he did on the cross for your salvation. And declare that he is Lord of your life. And ask him to forgive your sins. If there's a Christian in this room that's walking in disobedience, don't waste your life fighting against God and his will.
fighting against God's word. It's a losing battle. Christians, we're called to confess our sins, to turn from them, to embrace God's will for his life and to live, to embrace God's will for our lives and live in light of his sovereign rule over creation. Are you living for his glory? Is your life connected to his kingdom? And are you living in obedience to his will? Let's all stand together.